0: And happy new year, everybody! Welcome to 2022. Welcome to the inaugural episode of 2022 of the Do Not Listen to This podcast. I am your host, Sam Lacrosse. Can you dig it? I can. Welcome to 2022, everybody. It is an exciting time. It's a new year. You know, I I hate the new year, new me people, but I can't help that. You know, I think this one's going to be a good one. You know, kind of you know optimistic about. The quality of this year, and I hope you are as well, because I think that optimism is a very, very good thing to have, especially in the world in which we live currently today. And so I'm actually recording this. So it is, this is dropping, I believe, on January the 2nd. And I believe that, you know, this is going to, so I'm actually recording this now. It is Friday, December 17th. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get ahead on everything else. So I kind of finished this post up yesterday, this podcast up yesterday, and wanted to really kind of start off this year with a little bit of a bang and kind of, you know, get something going and get some thoughts going around a subject that I've been mulling about for a very long time. To start then, I've been thinking about this, like I said, for a while, and I've kind of been interested in, you know, kind of exploring the dynamics of it. And I think that's why I've been avoiding kind of the society and culture stuff for the last couple of months, because I was busy formulating what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it, and how I wanted to convey this argument. And... In the end of 2021, I had a lot of different conversations surrounding this topic, and not just this topic, but the whole topic throughout this whole month, which is the topic of gender. And I want to kind of, you know, frame this in the best way possible. It's not going to be politically correct, obviously, but I want to make sure that I'm getting, you know, the proper point across and exploring what I think is a very, very interesting subject. And I think it's a shame that it's under attack now, because I think that, you know, a lot of the stuff that has to do with, with men, with women, with, you know, all the other stuff going on around, around men and women are very, very interesting and very, very, you know, intuitive about what's going on in our society. So it's obviously a very, very instigative topic. It's a transgressive topic. It, it shouldn't be, in my opinion, but it is, so I kind of have to, you know, work with it in that form and fashion. So I'm just going to get right into it and, you know, want to start off year three of Don't Do This Media, don't do this, uh, year two of Don't do this. Listen to This Podcast, everything that kind of comes along with it in a way that I think is going to be really, really cool, really, really informative, and really, really interesting to see how people react to it. Like I said, I, I, it's year three, I still don't know if anyone's listening to this shit, but I mean, here we go anyway. So, like I said, I've been avoiding this topic like the plague, and I never thought this specific can of worms was worth unleashing. But as you can probably tell from this podcast's overall existence, it's getting unleashed anyway. It's a topic I, and most everyone else who is even remotely tuned into this shit that's going on, has been confronted with at least once. I've thought about how I could frame it, what I could do to possibly take a crack at understanding this ever-confusing and evolving topic. This is going to be my best shot at it, but I'm writing about it for a different reason than I ever anticipated doing so. Almost immediately after the Virginia gubernatorial race and surrounding elections, the Daily Wire hosted their traditional backstage roundtable to discuss the impact of that certain political movement. While the media and talking heads of our politicians griped and talked about irrelevant details like Donald Trump, taxes, voting rights, that sort of thing, all the prominent members of the company agreed on the one thing that swung the surprising upset of Terry McAuliffe in flavor of Glenn Youngkin. Education. The Daily Wire knew this because they had been the single greatest catalyst, at least in my opinion, in the tide turning. On October 11th of 2021, a reporter named Luke Rosiak, who was hired by the Daily Wire, published a bombshell story. In it, Rosiak cited the story of a young high school girl who was raped in the bathroom of a Loudoun County school district by the ma- by a male classmate in May of 2021. The two had apparently gone and hooked up twice before in a consensual fashion. This time, however was anything but, unfortunately. The two had apparently had a falling out and were not seeing each other. However, the boy knew of a loophole that could allow him to reinstitute his sexual ecstasy. The Loudoun County school system had recently established a set of rules for their school bathrooms. Anyone who identified as, but was not born, not it didn't matter if you were born as, either male or female, could use that particular set of bathrooms throughout the school district. If a girl identified as a boy, she could use the boys' restroom and the same in reverse. And this is, on its face, of course, ludicrous. It spits in the face of both reality and science. Men should be allowed to do their business in peace. Women, who obviously have a lot more to do in the restroom than men a good portion of the time, do as well. Solidarity with their own gender should be a given for matters as private and important as this. But it wasn't for Loudoun County. And it wasn't for that boy, either. Wearing a dress, the boy stalked outside the girl's bathroom and waited for the girl to enter. When she did... He followed her into the stall and forced himself on her. Completely taken by surprise, the ninth grade girl unfortunately had no defense. The boy anally raped her and forced her to fellate him. He left the bathroom unscathed. No one noticed. No one cared. The girl went home that night in obvious distress. She informed her parents what had happened and went to the hospital. The medical professionals ran a rape kit which came back conclusive to the girl's story. And the parents, needless to say, were livid. They wanted heads on pikes. The father, who was named in Rosiac's piece as, quote, Scott Smith, went to the school and demanded action and justice for his daughter's assault. They didn't give it to him. Smith, undeterred, went to a school board meeting on June 22nd. At that meeting, he was arrested. In a video that would soon go viral, Smith was taken into police custody and aggressively escorted out of the meeting. Prior, he had confronted one of the school board members, a liberal activist, about his daughter's story of her rape and stance on bathrooms. She said that she didn't believe him. Quote, believe all women does not count when it's a 15-year-old girl, apparently. Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, had played a role in this as well. He had sent out a memo a couple weeks earlier from his office about the rise of uproarious altercations at school board meetings across the country by concerned parents. In a move that essentially weaponized the Department of Justice, he threatened to use the federal government against its own citizens if they did not deter their, quote, violent behavior. Rosiak's story, however, completely broke open the floodgates. It was too late. Parents finally came to realize that the public school system might not be all it's cracked up to be. There were children, innocent people, getting hurt by this now, and it needed to stop. The citizens of Virginia made that clear on the night of the gubernatorial election when they ousted Clinton acolyte Terry McAuliffe, who weeks earlier had said in astounding fashion that the same citizens had no right to have a say in their children's learning. So, toasting a conservative victory, the gentlemen of the Daily Wire were talking about what this had to say in general about the state of the country. Matt Walsh, who went to Loudoun County and actually bought an apartment to protest, had the most interesting point. Before Rosiak's story broke, much of the debate around schools, and especially schools and young people and in colleges, had been around critical race theory, or CRT. But according to Walsh, there was a new Leviathan that had been unearthed. Quote, Gender theory is coming. To those who hadn't heard of its existence, this might be an odd claim. We're making this shit up now? That's what I assume, think most assumed. But it wasn't. I had stumbled upon it by chance when I had read Mark Levin's American Marxism over the summer. Spawning from the umbrella of critical theory by Marcuse, the Frankfurt School, and others, critical gender theory assumes that gender does not exist, and that anyone who assumes that it does is inherently oppressing anyone who believes it to only be a social construct. This is, again, and needless to say, ludicrous. Gender is a fact. It is real. The data tells us that it is. The world tells us that it is. But lately we've been hearing the opposite. And I find this to be a very large problem. If we as a society can't even figure out who is a boy and who is a girl, how are we supposed to figure out things that are infinitely more complex? Additionally, not only is gender getting dissolved, our topic for Part 3 of this series, it's getting bastardized and polarized. That's what this and the next post will both be about, and why there will be so controversial to some. But they need to be discussed. You can't hit what you can't see. If we do not understand how these problems are going to affect us, we won't see the consequences until it's too late. In the middle of October, around the time this is breaking actually, I called my dad during lunch, and I wanted to talk with him about my mom. I thought she was being too invasive in my privacy, but I didn't want to upset her, so I wanted to see what his best approach would be. He gave me solid advice, said to be sympathetic, and to let me know how it went. It was a good conversation. It always is with him, frankly. I thought it was over and went to hang up. But before I did, my dad said something that I found very fe- peculiar coming from him. Quote, Sam, I think you should marry a Mexican girl. End quote. I almost laughed out loud. I was more confused than anything else. I didn't know what to make of it. I don't have anything against Mexican women at all, and neither does my dad. I find them to be very beautiful, particularly since I'm surrounded by so many of them down in Texas. But my dad has never once inserted himself into my romantic life so aggressively before. Intrigued by his urgency, I asked him what was behind it. My dad had recently onboarded a new employee as an entry-level engineer in his company. The decision had come down to two candidates. One had the support of my dad, the other the rest of the hiring committee. My dad had won against the odds. Both candidates were recent college grads who had gone to good schools. The candidate supported by the hiring committee was a, white, was a white girl with an excellent GPA and a good co-op, which basically means you're going to school and you're doing an engineering internship at the same time. It's very it's kind of the gold standard, if you guys don't know, for internships, and for it's like the big boy internship for business students, this is for engineers, so I don't know if you guys knew that or if I'm just intellectually superior, I don't, I don't know. So roast me if you want. The one my dad supported was a black male from the inner city who had a decent GPA and no co-op. So on its face, regardless of the skin color and the gender, The situation should have been an easy one to make. The girl had the overall better marks, so she should have been in the pole position. But something rubbed my dad the wrong way about the girl. She didn't look for a job right after graduation. She had taken a five-month backpacking trip to Europe instead. The job, according to her, could wait. She didn't stick out in any of her interviews. She just regurgitated everything that every other girl who had interviewed for the position had said. She seemed entitled to the job, that she could just walk in and leave with an offer. The young man, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. The reason he didn't have a good co-op or as good of a GPA as other candidates was because he didn't have the time. He came from a single-parent household and worked three jobs to help his mom get by. He had to self-finance his entire education, which he remarkably was able to do. He didn't have time to backpack to Europe. He cared about his interviews. He was humble. He was willing to do whatever it took to get himself a good job. So my dad put his foot down. No way he would allow himself to let this kid slip away. This eventually, they eventually relented and hired the kid my dad had wanted to hire, and he turned out to be great. I was wondering why my dad was telling me this, and what it had to do with my dating life? My dad explained that he had seized a trend with young and mostly white women. A good majority of them seem entitled, out of place, and out of touch. They all look the same. They all act the same. They aren't willing to go the extra mile because no one else does. In terms of talent, it's hard to tell when there's any discrepancy because hardly any of them are willing to differentiate themselves. And this flashed me back to another memory in my life. When my former best friend started dating his, I believe, current girlfriend, I haven't talked to them in some time, I asked him some questions. His girlfriend was black, and he'd never dated a black girl before, and he was the furthest thing from black, which kind of made it objectively funny. He was basically a straight-up Aryan. Blonde hair, blue eyes, the whole shit. None of my white friends did date any black women. Like my dad with Mexican women, I don't have any problem with black women, and I think a lot of them are beautiful as well. But I found it curious because it was just kind of such an outlier in his dating history, so I asked him about it. And his answer cut the air like a knife Quote, All white girls are the same. I initially pushed back on this. It seemed like a very broad generalization to make. It might not have been fair, but this guy was a lot of things, and he later turned out to be a horrible person. But the thing that he never did, which I still respect, was lie to me. I began to dig deeper into this problem and discover something remarkable. He was right. All women these days, it seems, are the same. Take a common sorority, for example. These are the easiest to pick on, but they're also the best sample to draw from, I think, in this case. All young women of the same age in the same environment, relatively the same education, etc. How many of them look absolutely identical, talk the same, have visco links in their bios. Use the same captions and filters in their Instagram posts. Wear the same clothes. Support the same causes. Date the same type of guys. Have the same body type. The answer is quite a lot. They're all Barbie dolls. They seem to roll off an assembly line. Any descent is swiftly crushed with social ostracization. I've gone on a good amount of dates when you look at the numbers, but I've really only been on a few. Women are so embarrassingly undifferentiated in our generation that it feels like I'm trapped in Groundhog Day. It's basic white girl syndrome on steroids. My dad, when I asked him about it, thinks it has to do with social media, and he's particularly pessimistic about this topic. He's openly stated he wants the government to take a sledgehammer to every single one of those massive monopolies. I think he's partly right. I think it's a component of the problem, and a big one at that. But it's not the whole problem. I've spun up a hypothesis in my head, which will be explained in the rest of this podcast. And that hypothesis is this. There is an idea of what women are, quote, supposed to be like. And a lot of this is warranted. Gender is a fact, remember? But what is also a fact is what I said about factual gender being hijacked. The idea of the American female has been insidiously warped and infected by the women of my generation. It's been pimped and whored out, therefore leaving it vulnerable to untamed excess. It's going to snap at some point. In some ways, it already has. But it has the potential to get much worse. It has the potential to get much worse very quickly. This is not good, and this must be stopped. The majority of my friends are women, as I've said for the 650,000th time on this medium. Thankfully, they haven't been barbified. But in order to prevent other women from being so, and see what's going to happen if they keep being so, we need to see what they're up against. To unpack this wide-ranging idea, we need to see what it is and why it has warped the minds of American women, how it's playing out in society, and why it will eventually lead to the destruction of women to society's overall detriment. Part 1. The Contagion. I think a good place to start on how barbification has warped the minds of American women is with my dad's point on social media. And as I've alluded to before, I think he's half right. So let's start with why my dad's point is correct. It's undeniably true that social media has affected our mental health in negative ways. As Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's research shows in their book The Coddling of the American Mind, and others like Abigail Schreier in her book Irreversible Damage have shown, A lot of shit hit the fan when Apple released the original iPhone back in 2007. It's remarkable how much data points to that specific year leading to this tailspin of mental health in America, particularly among the young, impressionable, and weak. Social media is a feedback loop. It deliberately shortens our attention spans and hijacks our brains to seek dopamine through digital engagement. This shortening of our attention span and warping of our minds for the benefit of negligent products has led us to become incredibly emotionally and mentally fragile. This is a big part of what's going on with students on college campuses and the younger workforce. College students are the most mentally weak demographic in this country. Half the students that graduated in 2020 still don't have a job. Pandemic or not, that's a depressing and sad statistic. It's also undeniably true that the bulk of those negative mental health effects skew much more towards women than they do to men. One of the primary differences between men and women is what they are biologically drawn to in the world. Men, on average, are statistically draw- more drawn to work with things. Women, on average, are statistically more drawn to work with people. Women are more agreeable and open, and men are more assertive and close-minded. This is why a lot of the, quote, women in STEM push from the mob out there is complete and utter nonsense. There is a difference between the amount of women working in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics compared to men. It's not about women not being able to do these types of jobs. In aggregate, women are no less intelligent on average than men. We're about the same, actually. I work in a STEM field, albeit not in the smart part of it. I'm a sales guy, I'm not an engineer. And I know many women engineers. They're mostly very talented. But the facts remain that this is not discrimination. This is biology. We naturally skew towards what we are intrinsically good at. That's why women dominate fields like education and healthcare. It's simply in their DNA. This is also why women are more prone to the negative effects of social media. Due to the factors listed above, women naturally weigh their interactions with and opinions of other people more heavily than men do. They're more receptive to the claims of other people, fair or not, because it's baked into their biological cake in order to best thrive in a civilized society. The reason why social media has had a devastating effect on young girls is because this has been taken to an extreme and pumped full of steroids. Women can no longer escape the feedback loop, and they're constantly reminded of their vulnerability all the time. If social media pertained to the other side of the biological spectrum, there would be a similar crisis happening with young men as opposed to young women in this regard. And Instagram is the worst epitome of this trend. Evolutionary biology has proven over time that in order to be desirable by by men, women, in aggregate, have to be healthy and within breeding age. In totality, that's a pretty wide spectrum of qualities that can manifest themselves in a person. We come in all shapes and sizes. One person is not the same as the next. There are many ways in which people can be healthy. It's not an accurate assessment to compare someone who is 7 feet tall to someone who is 5 feet tall and tell them that they need to have the same diet and workout regimen. As long as they're not destroying their bodies with their bodies, the mindless and body positivity, odds are they'll probably end up okay. But Instagram has perverted this trend to a horrifying degree. What is attractive evolutionarily is no longer what is considered attractive. What is considered attractive nowadays is what is seen in the most visible, pl- visible fashion in places like Instagram, where women have a complete arsenal of facial shaping tools, filters, and Photoshop at their disposal. In a highly aggressive battle for social dominance of attraction, women are in a constant game of one-upsmanship against one another to see who can, be who, who can be the queen of the mountain. For all the talk of, quote, supporting other women, the complete opposite is actually happening. All it takes is a quick scroll through your Instagram feed to see the lie fully begin to populate. Evolutionary biologist couple extraordinaires Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein have been correct on this assertion for a very long time. This claim was made in most notable fashion in the couple's first appearance together on Joe Rogan. In this clip that would soon go viral, they explain the difference between a girl that is, quote, beautiful, versus a girl that is, quote, hot. The difference, according to the two, is in the duration. A beautiful woman is one that, evolutionarily, to the person who has assumed the characteristic, can hold the pattern of attraction over a long period of time. A hot woman, by contrast, in the context of evolutionary biology, can only hold a level of attraction for a limited time. Eventually people, particularly men in this case, get bored and move on to something else. This is already a cruel reality as it is for women to face. But it has grown to be an insidious infection due to the factors of social media and advanced communication shooting into the stratosphere. Due to the enhancements in these types of technologies, new channels of what I call social credentialing have been developed. Because what is socially desirable has not changed according to biological metrics. It is the same as it has always been. But according to sociological metrics, they have changed. It's not enough just to be healthy and young for women anymore. Now, they have to be like everyone else. There's a new model that has been created. One where certain characteristics must be possessed in order to command the attention of people within the social hierarchy. Without these needs being met, one cannot possibly have a chance of gaining any traction or input to what must be done to gain acceptance. But the irony of all of this is this. Is it really socially desirable? Well, if we were to take the examples of my dad and former friend at their word, then no, they're not. In economics, when you have a group of undifferentiated products, the market goes stale, the demand goes down. As soon as something new that fits the mold comes along, they are forgotten. They got cut down in the buzzsaw of consumer economics. The same is happening to young American women. All of them are slowly resting to become photocopies of one another. Due to a warped sense of what is desirable, they have all engaged in a deliberate game of copycat. It's a zero-sum game. It's not good for women, and it's not good for society. They're all becoming much more boorish, more drab, and more stale. All of the special qualities that make individuals individuals, and individual women individual women are now going down the toilet. which leads me into where my dad was wrong. On June 7th of 2021, Mark Manson released an article titled, quote "Social media isn't the problem. We are." In it, he, in his typical fashion, breaks a very hard truth across all of our backs. Social media may be a distortion of reality. It may not be a real life. but for however fucked up it may seem, There is one common trend that underlies all the bad shit that we see populate our feeds. Us. The reason that social media doesn't hold all the blame for our problems, specifically the one faced by women, is that it is ourselves that operates social media. There's a common phrase going around right now that we're the product that social media sells, not the algorithm or the platform itself. That is a true statement. But what also is a true statement is that the companies can't exist without users. We're how they make their money. We're the inputs. We cannot logically question the outcome of a process without questioning the inputs of the process. We should be held more responsible for the faults of social media in our society simply because we are what social media is. It's the old adage getting repeated over and over again. Not everything is your fault, but everything is your responsibility. Without us, the social media giants don't have a business. This is not to say that we should completely cut them out cold turkey. But we would be doing everyone a favor by limiting how much they can feast on our well-being. But we don't. Women don't. And that's exactly the problem. What was once a trend is now developed into a feeding frenzy. Humans are wired by biology to be naturally competitive. We've had to do it our whole existence, whether that it was for food, resources, whatever. Now the thing we compete over is our attention. Attention is why people use social media and why they wish to be seen. And since social media use is wired towards affecting more women than men, it's a fair assertion as to why they would seek it more. Which has led, inevitably, to the contagion of barbification. Barbification has led to a vicious cannibalization of women by other women. It's competing by being as undifferentiated and unoriginal as possible. What is, quote, attractive is not attractive at all. It's simply not being left left out. This massive copying of one another to fit this new model has led to a massive spike of uninteresting and undifferentiated women. There are no individual female personalities because they've all converged into a single entity. It's now baked into the American female cake that this formula is the only formula that exists. It's no longer a platform. It's an incubator. Women willingly plug themselves back into the matrix in order to feel like they're living in a socially acceptable way. But, in reality... They're actually masking themselves from their own reality. Because that reality is this. They know that they're flawed, as we all are. But they just don't want to admit it. Rather blend in with everyone else and dare to feel out of place. Might as well dye your hair blonde, go to Fort Lauderdale in spring break, and get a job working as an FPNA analyst at J.P. Morgan. Might as well travel to experience, quote, perspective. Might as well talk about mental health on social media. Might as well do nothing at all. More and more media coverage leads to more and more opportunities for this new contagion to spread and more and more weak people to let it spread. This affects all people, not just women. It would be a mistake to make it so. But to say that young women are not the primary enablers of this nonsense would also be a raging falsity. We engage in our own destruction the majority of the time. We are the cause. If barbification is a disease, they are the genesis. I think it's a good transition point I think a good transition point, rather, would be the statistics centered around the overall aggression of both male and female genders. Men traditionally have been perceived by people as being more aggressive than women. One would be reasonable to assume this. Men are the ones that fight in wars, convince, convince, or commit—I should say—the vast majority of violent crime, and are generally seen as the more assertive of the two. And the Big Five statistics that we cited earlier further confirm this. But this assertion, surprisingly, is actually wrong. Men and women are equally as aggressive as one another. It's just in the way that it comes out. The aggression shown by men is everything typically associated with aggression. Cussing, screaming, violence, etc. For women, however, it's different. They attack one another socially. They compete socially for attempting to, by attempting to one-up and destroy another and how they're perceived within the social hierarchy. This has fueled the barbification fire even more. When women are competing on the basis of attention, they realize that their resources are constrained. There is only so much attention to go around. So, in order to get the most out of it, they clump together and extort it from other groups of people. Every woman who doesn't, every woman who is perceived as different, is immediately expelled. But this, obviously, has negative effects, particularly on other women. A disease cannot stay in one place forever. It always spreads. Part 2. The Outbreak. So let's backtrack a bit. Earlier, I talked about my best friend at the time who was dating a black girl. He said half-jokingly that he found her attractive because she was different. Not just because she was a different ethnicity, but because she acted differently in what he perceived as a good way. And I agree with, with it at the time. She was cool, had cool hobbies, was interested in cool things, had different perspectives on stuff, etc., she later ended up wishing I was dead on a couple of occasions, but up until then, I thought our relationship was rock solid. His statement about young white women, particularly in college, was very enlightening to me. Up until then, I really hadn't thought about it once. I didn't grow up around a lot of minorities. Not a lot of people do in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. I mainly went on dates with white women not because I was prejudiced against women of color, but just because I was naturally was skewed towards what I knew. And we're all like that to some degree. This was further exacerbated last year. I moved to Austin at the end of May. In case you weren't aware, there are a lot of Hispanic people that live in Texas. There are a lot of every kind of people, which is a cool thing to see. But there are a lot of that demographic that is specifically concentrated in that one area. Hispanic women behave very differently than American-born women. In fact, immigrant women or first-generation Americans all behave much differently than that demographic. Their entitlement, from what I can tell, is next to zero. They have real problems. They and their families have had real hardships. They don't take things for granted. They're appreciative and grateful for various opportunities and work hard to achieve them. They're much more centered around family. They have really rock-solid values. They're proud, but they're not arrogant. In short, they're different, but in a good way. They all don't think the same about a lot of things from women I'm used to seeing, and this has been a very refreshing thing to see. It's giving me some hope that there are at least non-carbon-copied females out there, These types of women do not compose my friend group, as I mentioned earlier, but they compose an uncomfortable number of them outside of it. It's why a lot of my friends, particularly my female friends, aren't that large in quantity. The weekend before Thanksgiving, I flew out to my former college to visit those friends and go to a football game. It was the first time I'd been on campus since I'd left in peak COVID at the end of May 2020. I was excited to go back. I'm not a fan of college in general, but I was a fan of mine. It gave me a lot of of opportunities and good experiences and good friends and I was curious to see what had changed. Two very big things changed. The first was the campus itself. It was completely different. Random and sometimes incomprehensible social justice symbols scrawled all over the place. Local businesses gutted and replaced with corporate franchises. Robotic Grubhub delivery vehicles that reminded me a little too much of the climax of Dark Knight Rises. It was completely different from what I had left. I was disheartened, but I wasn't at all surprised. The second was the way in which I saw the campus. It's remarkable at how little we notice the passage of time, particularly when we're removed from a situation and then reinserted back into it. I was only 18 months older when I stepped up back onto campus since I left, but it felt like I had been thrown in with people a decade younger than I am. It turns out that the more you get immersed in a situation, the more context you lose in that situation. I had no idea how bubbled you are when you're in college. When you've been in and live all over the country, as I have, you see things quite differently. I was walking down the fraternity row and I noticed the biggest difference. The people. I wasn't in a frat. I'd hosted some charity events with my aforementioned old best friend and had hung out there several times, but I wasn't in one. When I was passing the young men on the street, I didn't feel 18 months older. I felt 18 years older. Now I've been called, proudly, the dad of the friend group numerous times, but this was completely different. I had a running joke of three dudes that fit this category in my satellite campus my freshman year of college. I called them the test tube babies. They all had blonde hair and wore Patagonia and vineyard vines. They talked exactly the same. They even had the same cockola accent. They laughed the same. Their teeth were shaped the same. It was like someone had made them in a lab, like Agent Smith out of the Matrix. Unfortunately for us real life potential simulation dwellers, we can't plug out. Walking down Fraternity Row was like that. Everyone looked, talked, and acted exactly the same. What hit me the hardest, however, were the women. I was a finance major in college. I got used to the aesthetic after a while. But there was a difference between guys and girls, particularly in college. In college, sorority women are every horny fuck's wet dream, like they were for mine. They're all you think about. They're perfect. But when I began to see them trickle out of classes and down in fraternity row, I began to see something else, and feel something else. Disbelief. I couldn't believe that I used to be attracted to this group of women. To reiterate the bubble effect, I guess I shouldn't have been shocked. They were my whole world because college at the time was my whole world. But when I look back on it, I realized how small that world actually is. It wasn't that these girls weren't objectively beautiful. Some were, some weren't. But what was objectively appalling was the similarity. There was almost no telling between any of them they were just Barbie dolls shuffling along the street like some bizarre real-life depiction of Toy Story. It was shocking, to put it mildly. When you look at the trends around young women in our society, you realize one that largely explains a good portion of this. Say, for example, that you run a business. When you run a business, you have to have something to sell. So you come up with a product. That product is good. Your customer base and market like it a lot and want to buy it. Demand goes up and you start to make money. These are good things. But soon you begin to realize that you have a problem. The capacity of your business is beginning to wear down. When the demand accelerates, so does the overall sustainability of the business, or else you will be out of business. There's only so much consumers that will tolerate it if you can't keep up with the demand, particularly if it's of that vital need to those consumers. So what does the business do? Well, they can take one to two alternatives. One of two alternatives, I should say. They can make more of the same product, or they can make a slightly differentiated and iterated product to complement the primary one. Take the aforementioned Apple, who does both these things really well. Apple sells a lot of iPhones and a lot of iPhones accessories, such as AirPods. The point of this is not to lose the demand. This is the point of any process, to make repeatable ideas that are based on success. This is as applicable to people as it is to making cell phones. Why do people follow influencers on social media? why do people go to networking events? Why do professional athletes always thank their parents in award press conferences? It's because that these things are the models of success according to these people. People follow influencers in order to learn how to influence. People go to networking events to be around and emulate successful people. People thank their parents because their parents laid the groundwork for how to live a good and successful life. We humans are model and evidence-based creatures. We don't do these things for shits. We're constantly looking for roadmaps on how to navigate our overall domain of the world in a fashion that can be beneficial for us to know and care about. But when that problem gets taken to excess, like so many things that can be done in instances like this, problems can occur. Complacency starts to set in. Conformity becomes the norm. All originality gets thrown out the window because it becomes deemed unfit for competition. They don't want things to start cannibalizing one another, particularly in a monetary sense, so they stop innovating altogether everything becomes rigid and stale. When women saw the new model and the contagion of both social media and their own lack of self-awareness converge into a vortex of attention, they saw an opportunity to get it to market. So, rather than cannibalize one another, they colluded together. They all, either directly or indirectly, took the opportunity to become a process of forming a new American feminine. They all began to act, look, and talk the same. They put individuality and interesting qualities out to pasture, those are too risky in an area that needed to be defined by conforming to their own bullshit expectations. These women think that they're getting ahead by doing this, but the opposite is happening. Diminishing returns are starting to take place in very rapid fashion. The quote basic white girl trend was only the beginning. It's now starting to become the norm. What was once seen as a meme worthy the outliers, now the general, generalized expectation for both young men and women on the way that women should be portrayed. But, being bloated with untamed excessive excess, it's soon going to be headed for a buzzsaw. Like my dad and my former best friend, everyone is beginning to see this coming. Everyone is beginning to see that, in aggregate, this demographic isn't desirable. They're a bunch of entitled, undifferentiated brats. They're interchangeable because none of them are different. They're a lot like pieces of any assembly line. The same cogs all going to the same purpose using the same process. That's a horrible thing for any person and group to be called or to resemble. But they are called it, because they do resemble it. I can't speak for this group myself. I am a man, if you weren't aware. But I can't speak to my relationships with these women, particularly on the dating front. I don't date my friends, if you weren't aware. This is all I can pick from. I'm talk- I've talked with my guy friends about this, at least the ones that have their heads screwed on straight. A lot of them don't, which is the subject of the next po- post. Spoiler alert. But when I see that they are, I try my best to engage with them on this subject in order to see if I'm coming out of left field or not. And I'm shocked at how similar a lot of our opinions are on this. It's not something I'm happy to be right on. But from my experience, I am. At least in some totality. For men dating this type of wimp, woman, again, speaking on behalf of the ones that have their heads on straight, the overwhelming sense that I get is one of frustration. The ones that are searching for something of meaning and substance constantly find neither. It's something that's weighing heavily o- overall in the male psyche, something that seems unfixable from both afar and up close. The reason for the collective frustration is because, even though men like women who, are, who compete, and I would argue this being the, same true, the true same and inverse, The majority of the women that are competing are all competing on things these men couldn't give a single fuck about. Men don't care about or desire something in a partner that is practiced by a majority of the young women today. As we've discovered, it's all fake, shallow, and unsustainable. If they truly become unrecognizable from one another, why would any man invest in one of them? It makes no sense when evaluating an investment, much less the most important one that most of us make in our lives. This is leading for more men to become single. Single men can branch out into numerous categories, none of them usually being good in the long term. They can become incels and stay home and get addicted to porn and video games. They can succumb to hookup culture and begin to have many empty dating dating relationships and sex with many of these undifferentiated Barbies. They can get into toxic relationships because they, and potentially the women that they date, can't handle the maturity of what a healthy relationship truly entails. This type of behavior has distorted and perverted the quality and wonder of the individual woman. But eventually, distortion can only go so far, because distortion always inevitably leads to destruction. Part 3, The Decay. Dr. Deborah So is one of the biggest enemies in the history of our modern mob. A former sex researcher turned journalist, Sow's job, for the longest time, was to study the study of sex and gender. Her specific niche was in the study of kinks and the psychology of different people's attraction to different, sometimes odd, things. And she led about as normal of a life as she could while doing that kind of work. Until the mob started to destroy her. After a published piece about the existence of biological sex, So was viciously attacked and blacklisted. She was universally renounced as a misogynistic and, feminist and anti-feminist bigot, even though So is an open feminist and is an open advocate for transgender destigmatization. It didn't matter. So unable to deal with her reality in academia, left it to begin a much more noble profession of telling the truth about sex and gender. We'll be referencing So more in the third volume of the series. Can you guys guess of what it is yet? <laughs> but there is something that needs to be first addressed. So, after her massive attempted cancellation, could only find a home on alternative media sites. Megan Kelly, also a f- former mass cancellation attempt victim, was eager to have So on. Kelly, who had endured years of sexual misconduct at the hands of former Fox News boss Roger Ailes, is also a feminist that was perturbed by the current movement. I found the conversation between the two of them to be incredibly enlightening. I feel that there's an unfair pressure for women to automatically conform to narratives in society, particularly around social issues such as this one. Women, who had been for years a marginalized group in society up until they were allowed to vote and given fair salaries and opportunities for work, are now constantly pressured into bending the knee to other social movements for things that they may or may not believe in. This is not to say that women don't face unnecessary discrimination in the workplace in some isolated incidents. They certainly do. I think it's unfair when women get called bossy when they're trying to be assertive. I think women in leadership positions tend to be easier targets for critique and criticism. There are other things as well, and conversely, many unfair things said about men. But the key word here is isolated. Women, from what I have seen and heard from most of them who have not succumbed to the madness, feel that their opportunities are fair. When these isolated incidents happen, they wait and see before taking action. They view, correctly, that making mountains out of molehills that may not even be molehills at all is a regressive and useless decision. This isn't just a woman thing, either. The more that you can make yourself immune to victimhood, the better you tend to do overall in making yourself a success. A large portion of Kelly and So's discussion was devoted to this phenomenon. But, being self-aware, they didn't point the blame to anyone outside of their own gender. They pointed it internally. They blasted the radical transgender activist movement, not transgender people, to be very clear, for being counterproductive to what they are saying. They said, correctly, that it was insulting to women to to treat transgender women as their exact counterparts. They are not. This is not a matter of social justice or activism. This is a matter of biology. But even more concerning to the two women was the casual acceptance of women to just go along with the radical narrative that is cannibalizing their own gender. The basicness of the younger women that raise their their painted fists to every single movement that they may or may not agree with. The radical transgender activists that force down their throats that everyone can get pregnant and menstruate. The far-right people that use biological women as clubs to hit back for political gain. This leads, inevitably, to open and rampant discrimination against women for, quote, not fitting the mold. But fitting what mold, exactly? Because what if the mold sucks? What if the mold is wrong? Because the mold does suck, and the mold is wrong. The female gender is decaying right before our very eyes. The bullshit appeal of the barbification of American women and the outside forces that are assisting them in their own, excuse me, destruction, are rendering their appeal to zero. Women are cannibalizing themselves. But the rest of the world that seeks their destruction is more than happy to hand them a fork and knife. Others are taking note of this as well, and want no part. Even though they themselves are isolated examples, the stories of my dad and former friends show this. People don't like this kind of behavior. Employers don't like it, and men don't like it. The young female population of America, the Barbie dolls of our society, are wrecking themselves in immense fashion with two of the populations that give us all some of the most meaning in our lives a career and significant other. This subtrend is accelerating the main trend, and therefore women are starting to feel more isolated. They then start to caricature themselves more. The excess continues to inflate and at a frightening pace. It makes everyone worse off. Dave Chappelle hit on this point in his latest comedy special. When people of identity groups feel threatened, the easiest to do, even though it's the most counterintuitive, is to lash out in another identity group, or counterproductive, I should say, is to lash out in another identity group. When J.K. Rowling and others refuse to say that trans women in this specific example were not women, they were and are called TERFs. Trans-exclusionary radical feminists, I, I, I guess that's what it means, are no longer welcome among women, whatever either of those terms mean anymore. The female gender is disintegrating because of all these combined factors. It's going away, and it's going away fast. If I were a woman who has actually respected the idea of femininity, I would be extremely upset by this. Why should anyone have a right to declare what something should mean to a specific person, especially if it's true? It's a very defeating proposition to always have to play defense all the time. It's an even tougher task for when you're being asked to defend, is for what you're being asked to defend is something you shouldn't have to defend at all. At the end of the day, this will and is hurting everyone. Women are necessary for a society to continue to function. Without them, we have no society. Women are the gatekeepers for our future. They do so much much for us, particularly as men. Some of the greatest Americans either were women or were supported by women. Their uniquely individual characteristics, particularly at the individual level, offered a beautiful perspective into things that others, particularly men, can't begin to hope to see. Women are the reason for so many great things that happen in America. But, when that goodness gets distorted and mass-produced, it always decays into nothing but a hopeless mire of false idols and broken promises. And that's a truly sad thing for all of us. Women are miraculous and wonderful creatures. They are responsible for forwarding our race into the future, creating life, and bringing vitality into our world in all facets of our existence. But women now have it all wrong. Instead of choosing the individual greatness that they could inhabit, they're mortgaging it for the misplaced sense of the collective, to everyone's detriment. When there are no differences between women, individual women do not exist. Maybe you think this is a pot shot, a claim of me hating on other women, or women at all. And it could be a little bit. I've been hurt by a lot of them. But this is year three of me creating material. You should know by now that I'm an equal opportunity offender, and I always point the heaviest blame at myself. And a big part of me is being a man. Everyone gets these jokes, to use Andrew Schultz's phrase. The gender the opposite of women gets it in two weeks. My own. And unfortunately for Ken, he doesn't get to party with Barbie. All right, guys, starting the year off with a a banger there. So, again, I thought, again, this is a really interesting topic. I can't wait to flush this out the rest of the month. And I hope you guys had a great New Year's, a uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, the whole thing. Um, you know, and I can't wait to, you know, go into 2022. I got a lot of exciting things coming up. Hopefully I can tell you guys about them soon because they are, they're happening. So we are going to get, you know, we're going to get rolling on them. So own the day, open your mind, have a great weekend, guys. Talk to you soon. See you next week.